what I'd like to talk about <coughs> is some basic preliminaries or some facets which again are common to a lot of Buddhism but particularly emphasized in the path of Mahamudra. Now here I'm taking, for those who know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, I'm taking um, the particularly the Gimukpa approach, which is the school that was founded in the 15th century by Tsongkhapa, who was the great Tibetan teacher, 15th century reformer of Tibetan Buddhism. He's connecting with an older lineage of Tibetan teachings coming and stemming from India and placing them within quite a rigorous framework. That's about all you need to know for the kind of historical stuff. But what he does emphasize, and I think we'll investigate these together really as much as anything else, what he does emphasize is three facets which are extremely important uh, for practicing the spiritual path, and particularly practicing the path such as Mahamudra, which in some senses, particularly in its later stages, is slightly more risky than some of the other basic Buddhist paths. And I'll say more about that as we go through the week. But he emphasizes these really foundational elements. The first one is, um, I have to say, not terribly uh, commonly used term in today's modern world, and it's the term renunciation, particularly obviously associated with monastic context, with the context of Tibet and the large monastic institutions that were founded in Tibet, but also going right back to Indian Buddhism and some of the teachings of the historical Buddha as well. That's the first one. The second is the arisal and cultivation of a state known as bodhicitta. This is the mind which is set on awakening. But not just for his or herself, but set on awakening for the benefit of all beings. This is the first preliminary stage to the path of the Bodhisattva. The stepping on the path which in some ways makes the Mahayana paths distinct from the non-Mahayana paths, which is the path towards complete and perfect Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. The last one, which is we'll delve, we'll delve into later on in the week, is the teaching of Shunyata, the teaching of emptiness, how all phenomena are intrinsically empty of anything like inherent existence or intrinsic existence. Now, in comparison with the first two, the latter one is quite difficult. But let's perhaps examine, first of all, renunciation. And I'll say a few words before we actually start to talk about renunciation, about the way the Buddhist path is divided up in general. All manifestations of Buddhism, <coughs> particularly those found in early Buddhism, are divided into the path of what's generally translated as morality, the path of meditation, and the path of wisdom. The latter two translations I don't like at all. Either meditation or wisdom. I prefer to call them cultivation and understanding. The first is adequate, actually, the path of morality. 
Now, what I want to say about that is, is the, the latter two, particularly the one that we obviously are practicing here over this week, the path of meditation, means absolutely nothing if it's not grounded in morality and grounded in moral practices. So the path of morality is essential. It's essential for all practitioners, be they lay or be they monastic. Now the path of morality for lay practitioners is fairly minimal. It's the one that was read out to you last night in the opening talk by Sally, which are the five precepts, which can be extended for longer retreats to take on things like not eating after midday and not sleeping on high beds and wearing perfume and all sorts of other things. But the basic minimum one is the five precepts. And these, actually in their original wording, are undertaken as what's termed rules of training. They're not thou shalt and thou shalt not. They are rules of training which, which one freely enters into in order to develop wholesome states of being. But without that, meditation practice on its own, the path of cultivation, which I'm calling path of cultivation, really becomes quite meaningless. In other words, it doesn't extend into one's ordinary life. It doesn't move out of rooms like this into our daily practice unless it's founded in the development and cultivation of wholesome states of mind founded in moral or ethical practice. It's extremely important, therefore, that one pays great attention to these basic rules. Obviously, the first one is extremely important, you know, to refrain from harming living beings to undertake the rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. That's not as simple as might, one might think. It's not as simple as saying, don't kill something. It's not as simple as that. To refrain from false speech. Well, again, it's not as simple as saying, don't lie. To refrain from you know, taking, not taking what is not offered or not given freely is not as simple as saying, don't steal. I won't go into them all because you can read these, you can come across them quite, you know, quite easily in all of the literature. But what's so extremely important about them is their rules not just to engage in, but to be thought about and practiced in all forms of our lives. In other words, to say something like, don't engage in false speech or don't take what is not offered, means for us to engage in thinking. And I don't mean just intellectually, and I keep stressing this over this week, but to keep thinking about our position about where we are, how we're engaging in our daily life. Because it's so easy, isn't it, just to take something that doesn't you know, appear to be very much, you know, making a telephone call on somebody's telephone or taking a pencil or doing all the kinds of little things that we engage in, unthinkingly, unwittingly, without really 
thinking of the consequences at all. Now this becomes even more important in things like refraining from harsh speech or false speech because engaging in false speech, no matter how innocent, for example, the untruth might be, <coughs> the exaggeration that we engage in might be, we simply do not know the consequences of what's going to follow from that. We might even sometimes think that we're doing this with the best of intentions. There's a wonderfully old saying, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, which is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, of course what I'm talking about here is a much, much misunderstood word, which is the word karma. Karma is causes and consequences. Every cause gives rise to a consequence. Only that might lead us to think that we might be able to predict what the consequences are like or going to be that follow from any given action. It's not as easy as that with the Buddhist idea of karma. We tend to think perhaps more in terms of something like Newtonian mechanics, you know, where you roll a billiard ball across a table and you know, this is the way snooker players work, isn't it? And be able to predict where you think the ball is going to go, where it hits the other ball. Yeah, because there's laws which govern it, predictable laws. Well, the scenario is like this, in the Buddhist perspective, which is you roll the ball across the billiard ball table, it hits the other ball, and you haven't got a clue what's going to happen as a consequence of it striking the other ball. There's no way of predicting, from our perspective, what could happen. So when we set up these deeds, which is particularly stressed in Tibetan Buddhism, but is there again throughout the whole of Buddhist practice, which is actions of body, speech and mind. Well, particularly the mind is obviously the most important one because that's going to affect what we do and what we say, is that we don't know what affects our actions of body, speech, and mind are likely to have. In other words, as soon as we act in any way, we set up causal networks. And those networks ramify into other networks, which ramify into other networks. So we're embedded in a vast causal complex. And we haven't got a clue what's going on in it most of the time. So the whole thought about where I'm starting this evening is that all meditation practices, all cultivation practices, Mahamudra, Tantra, just basic Vipassana practice, all have to be founded on good ethical practice. Now if you never do meditation, but you have good ethical practice, in other words, you engage mindfully with what you're doing, in a sense that is meditational practice, that is cultivation without necessarily ever sitting on a zafu, ever sitting in a room like this, that's what it's all about. So particularly stressed within the Tibetan tradition is that 
Meditational practices, and I'll keep using that word even though I don't like it. Meditational practices are not an end in <coughs> themselves. Meditational practices are means. Means of engaging. Means of, en- means of engaging in wholesome action, in wholesome states, or evoking whole- wholesome states of mind, which cause us to act in the world and be in the world in a different way. So, getting these foundations right is extremely important. Because as I said earlier on, that unless one engages with that side deeply, not just superficially, but deeply looking at our actions, looking at our speech, looking at the way we engage with the five precepts, not unthinkingly, but thinkingly. You know, when I mean thinkingly, I mean deeply, deeply engaged. In that sense, the Buddhist path of ethics and morality is not an easy one, because there are not rules which one simply applies. Other traditions, other religious traditions, often have a thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's a very different means of engagement. It's the activity of applying a rule into situations you think is the same. The difference between that and what I'm talking about here is that, obviously, in the Buddhist perspective, there is nothing which is the same. There is no situation which is absolutely identical. So one always has to engage, connect. One has to have the freedom and spaciousness of mind to be able to do that, rather than it cluttered with presuppositions, opinions, and the confusion in which we generally dwell. So when we talk about awakening, the state of the Buddha, really what we're talking about is awakening from a state of confusion, advancing towards a state of clarity. Now it's only with clarity that we can genuinely act, not react. Now I think I was saying to you last night, the situation that we find ourselves mostly in is a state of reaction, not action. We react to things, as I said last night, habitually. That's the way we know. That's the way that seems familiar to us. What we're moving into in engaging in these ways is something that sometimes feels very uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar. As you know, when you move into strange situations, into altering, for example, even your bodily posture, in some way, trying to retrain yourself perhaps because you have a back problem or something like that and somebody's trying to make you aware that you're not holding your spine straight or something then that situation when you're trying to correct it initially feels very strange and can make you feel very unbalanced for that moment however engaging in, and using this analogy just a little bit further, 
engaging in trying to one, hold one's posture correctly to correct the defect that you might have, say, in your spinal cord column, eventually itself becomes a familiar way of being and becomes a more wholesome, healthy way of being. Now that's what we're talking about here. Moving away from the analogy, we're moving from a state of confusion, a state of dis-ease, a state of fragmentation. Now the Western world, at this present moment in time, is extremely fragmented. Um, one psychoanalyst who I heard speak quite recently describes the Western world as profoundly depressed. Overall. Uh, that was a general diagnosis of the whole state of the Western world, which I thought was quite intriguing. But it's very fragmented. That's reflected often in our own behaviour, because we are mirrors of what's going on in the greater whole. We act from confusion. We act from a lack of clarity. So what we're attempting to do is to create clarity. Now, one of the great, now can we go right back to where I started from, one of the things that Tsongkhapa says, and stemming from the Buddhist tradition, was that one needed a state of renunciation to bring about something approaching at least a certain form of clarity. A clarity in regard to, for example, possession. Now, Realistically, I look around this room and I'm talking, like myself, to a group of lay people, not monastics. Um, most of us are not going to don the robes, even if I did do a long time ago. Um, don the robes and go off and live in monasteries and give away all your possessions and live on a certain number of requisites which you're told you can have, like living at the foot of a tree, for example. <laughs> doesn't seem terribly practical in the Western world. So how does this term renunciation speak to us in the Western world? If it's to be meaningful and we're to engage with a term like that at all, it could be just that, that it's an archaic anachronism in the Western world. However, I don't personally think so. I'd be interested to see if you have anything to say when I finish talking. Because Renunciation is not so much about shaving your head, donning a robe and giving away all your possessions. It's as much about a state of mind as anything else. And quite, this is made quite clear in a lot of extremely humorous stories in Tibetan literature about you know, rich people who, for example, don't get worried about losing anything or giving away their money. But there is this hermit, this monk, whose begging bowl gets stolen and he gets really angry about it because <laughs> it's his only possession. So it's the one thing he's really, really attached to is his begging bowl. And there's many, many stories like that within this, this tradition. Obviously pointing up... Sorry, sure. I'm, I'm just not sure if I Renunciation. To renounce usually means to give up something usually means, well, particularly in monastic traditions, it means, for example, to renounce the household of life. When you enter the monastery, you give up all the things and responsibilities that go with the household of life. 
your possessions, a house, children, all those sorts of things. So it means, literally, it could do, and it did in the Buddha's era, people giving up things in order to enter his monastic order. Now, what I'm trying to say is that obviously that's not practical for most of us in the Western world to do that. So does this term have any meaning for us? And I was suggesting perhaps it still does because it's more a quality or a state of mind than an absolute giving away of everything that one owns. So what I would suggest is this basic quality that's being indicated here is about a coming into a new relationship with what one inevitably, if you live a lay life, has. Now, we probably all have places where we live, albeit just rooms, and we tend to fill those rooms with things. <laughs> Sometimes far too many things. <laughs> for the size of the room. Um, now that's also about accumulation. How much do we really need to accumulate? Now this connects with a bigger question, and I'll only kind of mention it tonight, but it connects with the bigger question of what's going on in terms of global capitalism and all the things that are proffered to us that we are told that we are kind of lesser beings if we don't have them. It's all part of the Western syndrome of accumulation and having as a mode of being. Now that doesn't necessarily, and I might say this here because you know, perhaps some of us might accumulate in different ways. We might not have lots of big cars and nice houses and stereos and televisions and all the rest of it, but we might spend our lives accumulating in a different way, becoming collective, might be knowledge, information, might be, I don't know, reading Dharma books and collecting them. Because one can get into that too. The late Chögyam Trungpa had a wonderful term for it, he termed it spiritual materialism. Okay. It can often be. So when we talk about renunciation, really it's about making us examine our relationship to what we accumulate, to what we have, to what we gather. So it doesn't mean possessing lots of things. It doesn't mean having a great deal of wealth. It means the quality of the relationship with anything that we might have at all, be that intellectual knowledge, be that understanding of Buddhism itself. Because the Buddha always stressed that sometimes we actually hold on to the letter of the law rather than the spirit. In other words, we accumulate all the rules and hold on to them very strongly and somehow lose the spirit within it. So the rules themselves, and this is particularly indicating towards the monastics, the monastics could hold on to them you know, for the Theravadan monks, 227 rules, 
abide by them very strictly and somehow lose the complete spirit of Buddhism in doing so. So, renunciation, as I suggest, is coming into relationship with things. Making us look again. All of these things are making us look at how we live just our ordinary, average, everyday life. Not how we live when we're at retreat centres or in Buddhist centres, but how we live averagely, every day, day to day, hour to hour. That's where all of this makes sense, out there in the ordinary world, in that day-to-day existence. So places like this become places where we get the time, the space, literally, to be able to intensify that process. But that process still has to continue outside. In fact, it only makes sense outside in your ordinary daily life. Now, many years ago, um, I spent a long time in Sri Lanka, and the meditation teacher in the centre where I was in Sri Lanka used to say, you think you've got a bit of calm? Go down into candy <laughs> and see if you still have it at the end of two days. That used to be the little test. He'd banish people from the centre every so often, just send them down into the city to see if they'd got that equanimous mind at the end of two days of the hurly-burly of an Asian city. So, that's the test. That's the testing ground. That's the testing ground in terms of even what I'm talking about in terms of renunciation. Perhaps I'll just say a few words this evening, because I want to open it up so that you get a chance to ask some <coughs> questions as well, or comment, not just ask questions, about bodhicitta. Now, bodhicitta, as I say, is mind bent on awakening. The mind which is directed towards awakening for the sake of all beings. The latter part of that phrase, for all beings, recognises something very fundamental about the way that we are in the world, which is, we're not alone, if you hadn't noticed, we're not alone in this world. Um, we're surrounded by other living beings continuously. So within the Mahayana tradition, there's the idea that one has to acknowledge that relationship that one has, that responsibility that one has towards other living beings. Primarily, obviously, because we dwell within the human world, a lot is centred on the human world. But it goes much, much further than that. It goes into you know, all other forms of life as well, and the responsibility that we have for them. This is stressed, by the way, very strongly in obviously the place where Buddhism originates, which is in what we now call Hinduism. In Hinduism, they also use the word dharma, which is obviously a word which is ubiquitous <coughs> in Buddhist practice. But in Hinduism, it has the connotation of law, duty, as well. So when we talk about... In fact, in Hinduism, it's very interesting because they don't talk about human rights. They talk about human duties. 
human responsibilities. So in other words, we don't just simply have rights by veto, by, you know, simply by fear. Actually, what we have is duties towards other things, other beings. Animals, in their view, don't have rights, but we have duties towards them. Strong responsibilities, in other words. Now, part of that still continues to echo through Buddhist understanding, and particularly by the time of the growth of the Mahayana, which starts somewhere in the early centuries you know, before the Christian era, and then really takes off from about the second century onwards. The growth of a new vision of what Buddhism was about, and that really is exemplified in this, you know, this phrase, bodhicitta the mind or the consciousness directed towards awakening for the sake of all beings. Now it's about the quality of relationship. This is what it's emphasising. Let's just for a second dwell on the quality of relationship between humans, because that's the one obviously we're very, very familiar with. We can either talk about authentic relations between humans, or inauthentic relations between humans, between particularly the opposite sexes. Most of what we see around, I think, qualifies for the former, the inauthentic, rather than the latter. The quality simply isn't there, it's absent. We see this enacted day in, day out, in the frustrations in relationships, the lack of relationships, in fact, is often exemplified in the quality of speech that we hear. I don't know if you ever observe it sometimes, but a lot of conversation doesn't count really as dialogue or conversation, but more like something like interrupted monologue. It always reminds me of Harold Pinter's plays. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Harold Pinter's plays, where nobody actually speaks to each other. You know, somebody says, I feel terrible today, and they say, yes, but that's a beautiful carpet. <laughs> and they never reply to anything anybody says. I think a lot, without overemphasizing it, because I think one of the things I would always stress to is you have to investigate all of this. Any of these things I'm saying to you, don't honestly, obviously take it uh, on board. Investigate it. See if it's true for yourself. See if it's true in your own experience. That's the only way to test it. It's actually engage in the investigation. Where we started from in talking about the morality, the ethical perspective, those are rules for investigating wholesome forms of living. They are not thou shalt, as I stressed to you earlier on. So when we look at the complexity of human relationships, then we're looking at all forms of ethical behaviour between human beings. Minimally covered, I think, in the five precepts. Minimally covered. But they do open up an arena or an agenda <coughs> for a deep, deep investigation into the quality of our relationship. Just to take the one instance, the quality of our speech to each other is for example, our speech harsh? Is it divisive? 
Or is it caring? Does it reflect care, concern? Most of all, does it actually say anything? Now I pause because a lot of what qualifies for speech doesn't actually say anything. It's often about merely passing on words. So, where does our speech arise from? I'm not attempting to answer these questions, just pose them. That's something we have to examine, something we have to look at. If we're talking about this correct relationship, and the relationship that genuinely wants to help others, the relationship exemplified in the notion of bodhicitta, a desire to want to direct oneself towards awakening for others, not just for myself, but for others, then automatically under investigation are such simple day-to-day actions as the quality of what we say to each other. Is it hurtful? Is it harsh? Is it divisive? Is it false? Public life seems to be riddled with false speech. From chief constables to Geoffrey Archer. Public life seems to be riddled absolutely with a lack of the ability to actually say how things are. Now, if that's happening at the public level, that generally means it's going on at the lower level of society, because our public servants generally reflect the state of the society, rather than vice versa. So that means, really, it's extremely important for each and every one of us to examine our speech in ordinary day-to-day situations. Ordinary life, again. Sometimes the best response, and some thinkers, including some Buddhists, have included silence as being a form of speaking. Because, as we know, in the old adage, isn't it? Silence speaks. And sometimes silence is the only wise response to something. So speech is far more complex than simply what comes out of the mouth. It's about the quality of the intention as well behind it. And that's obviously extremely important in all aspects of Buddhist practice, is the quality of the intention behind the act, be it a verbal act or a physical act, or obviously where it stems from in the first place, this is the mental act. So we have to be vigilant. We have to examine what we're doing. But rather than get weighed down by this, one should be extremely joyful for it, because it's actually about engagement, an intense engagement with life. To 
think in terms of some of the things I've talked about, in terms of the quality of relationships we have to our objects that we possess, our possessions, to think about the quality of the relationships we have with others in terms of our speech and our actions, to examine the very foundation of our moral, ethical being in the world, not just every so often um, as a kind of check-up when you come to a retreat centre, but day to day, to do that is to enter into the heart of life. It's not simply to go through those gestures which are merely reactive gestures, because they are the habits that we know. They are the habits of speech, the ways that we evade, the ways that we dodge things the mendacious forms of behaviour that we all engage in. And I'm not talking about vast, you know, vastly big things. I'm just talking about the ordinary day-to-day avoidance that we can often go through. means to actually avoid engagement with life. Not to enter into the heart of it. So, what I'm saying tonight is that this really opens up a hugely adventurous, joyful region, region of engagement for us if we take it seriously. And that's only something that you can decide or not decide to do, is to take seriously this engagement. Now, calming the mind, just some final words, calming the mind, which is where we've been today, or attempting to do, by using the breath, again, is not an end in itself. Calm mind, still mind, is not an end in itself, in the Buddhist perspective. If we achieve it, wonderful. (laughs) If we achieve a calm mind, if we achieve this pliancy of mind that you get through calmness, through relaxation, then very great benefits accrue from it. But it also has to be utilised in engagement in the development of the other side, the freedom of mind, to then examine our stuckness, our fixation, our repetitiveness. That's where even the practices that we've done today, and we'll be doing some of our practices throughout the rest of the week, alongside some other practices. But the foundation is samatha to be applied in other areas. And when you get calmness of mind, it has to be applied. It's not simply sitting back with a big blissful smile on your face, (laughs) which might be very nice. (laughs) It's not just that. It's the utilisation of it, the taking it forward, applying it. And this is what the Mahamudra practices do. It's foundational to then get applied in quite dynamic ways. I think I'll shut up there <laughs> and leave you to ask some questions. Yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm going to show you how to apply it. I'll give you some techniques which are within the tradition, which will hopefully help you to understand how it's utilised.
I mean, generally these sorts of stories, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, are usually there to, to jolt your recalcitrant monk or practitioner out of habitual state again. And you know, the Tibetan tradition, stemming from India, a lot of some of these stories as well, is full of those kinds of things where the, the teacher, the master, does something unexpected. That's what it is about. It's unexpected, not in line with the norm at all. Now, generally, of course, that can only come about from one who understands. And so it doesn't mean we can suddenly, personally, all enter into aberrant behaviour, <laughs> which again might be nice, but it's not terribly helpful. Um, the kind of aberrant behaviour that these people um, engage in, the masters and the adepts, and that are generally to, to shock their students out of, uh, of an unawareness, to shock them into a new understanding. Um, yeah, it would be good to have a few around. Unfortunately, even within the Tibetan tradition, they're fast disappearing. A lot of these people that did actually have that sort of understanding and awareness. Actually, one. I have a note today, and I think it's one I ought to clear up in, in, in general rather than just reply to it personally, because I'm sure others might be confused by this sort of preempting questions at this stage, um, which is a question about mind and chitta, mind and consciousness, and the difference between them, if there is such a thing. The big problem, as I think I indicated to you last night when we're thinking in terms of Buddhism, is actually there isn't really a Buddhist word or a Sanskrit or Pali word which corresponds directly to this word that we have in English, which is mind. There is no one word which really covers it. Also, when we hear this word mind in English, I don't know how your kind of minds react when you hear this word, but Particularly these days, one often hears it in terms, perhaps, of something like brain functions, um, neural pathways. That might be one picture, if you're more scientifically minded. The other picture that you might get is a kind of container <laughs> in which things go on. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the most common one, usually. You know, the container which contains memories the container that contains experiences, um, anger and like and dislike, and all of those sorts of things. So these are kind of going on on a stage, which is your mind. None of these have the remotest resemblance to what the Buddhist understanding of the notion of citta is. Or there are many synonyms, actually, in Sanskrit and Pali to indicate the same thing. What we really 
second phase when we talk about mind in a Buddhist way, and unfortunately we're stuck with this word because it's very difficult to translate, what you must hear is something much closer to the flow of experiences. That's what mind is. It's not a thing. It's, as I indicated to you last night, Buddhism very rarely talks, it virtually never talks in terms of things. It generally only, and particularly this is true of the Tibetan tradition, only talks in terms of processes. So when we talk about mind, what we mean is the conscious flow of processes, or the conscious flow of experiences, which make up a phenomena which we then go on to label mind. So, hopefully I'll make it a little bit clearer that it's not a thing, it's an activity. It's, a, to use a very old word, a kind of happening, it's something going on. Mind goes on. And within Buddhist traditions they talk about it being endless. Yeah, the flow of experience continues. Each experience giving rise to another experience which gives rise to another experience in a continuous flow of experiences. Very, very complex. So please, please, when you hear the kind of words that seem to, in English, make the world static, like the word mind often does, please try to hear it in terms of, of process and change and permanence. And as I said, Buddhism doesn't speak in nouns, it talks in verbs. Um, so, you know, there's minding going on. <laughs> you want to try and turn it into a verb, and it doesn't, do, doesn't work very easily in English, unfortunately. That's right, it's a constant arrival and passing away of different events. Now they have a technical term for these, these are actually what's known as uh, chaita or chataska. These are mental events occurring and each mental event has its own chitta or consciousness that goes with it. And in some of the literature they describe this as kind of bear in mind the sort of um, era that the um, Buddhist psychology arose in, was every chitra is a bit like a king that arises with its retinue. So every consciousness arises a whole load of mental events of which there's a minimum of seven. <laughs> it is vastly, vastly complex. It's extremely complex. I don't know how many of you have ever delved into this heady world of Buddhist psychology called the Abhidharma. The Abhidharma um, is extremely dry and terse. It lists out, for example, all the types of mental events you're likely to encounter. Then in a book of about 4,000 pages, it lists all the combinations that they're likely to enter into. So it's comprehensive, to say the least. And you're supposed to be able to recognise some of these when you're meditating. <laughs> so there's a lot going on, is all I'm saying. 
Um, and it's arising continuously and it's arising extremely quickly. <coughs> extremely quickly. Yeah, sure. Just referring to what Okay, say the words again. Awareness and attention, or? Yep. Okay. Well, perception can take place without necessarily any attentive basis being laid to it. I mean, in other words, perception itself is a mechanical event in Buddhist terms. Um, and it re- involves a minimum relation of a certain number of mental events. That's all. But, as we know, for example, I'm, you know, I can perceive um, all sorts of sensations, but my mind might not be directed towards them. So it's the quality of the direction which creates attention, which is the sati, that's the part in satipatthana, the awareness, the directedness to it. So, for example, I'm perceiving all sorts of things as I'm sitting here, but very little of it am I attentive to. There's a vast chaosmos of material coming at me all the time, both in terms of of the sensations that I have, um, which are in a minimal sense perception as well. But then you really rise to the level of mindfulness or awareness when the mind is actually directed towards it. Now the mind is not, in my chaosmos, directed towards much of it. In fact, very little of it. Only, you know, for example, you at the, the back. You know, whereas everybody else within my continuum kind of falls into the background. And I'm not really aware of it. So our awareness is directed. That's the difference. And we can move it. It's a bit like, I mean, if you want to see analogies, it's a bit like using a torch to illuminate things. You know, that's awareness attention, looking at the way that we illuminate those things. And if that helps at all. Yes, I mean, there are distinctions made. I mean, within, you have to bear in mind that they're different within different traditions. I mean, I'll talk about it specifically in relation to the tradition we're looking at here. Because they'll talk about basic nature of mind, which is mind as such, is what they refer to it as. Which is the basic luminosity of mind. They have a definition of it. I mean, I would find it rather slightly opaque in some ways, despite its definition, which is, you know, mind is that which is defined as mainly clear and knowing. <laughs> doesn't help you illuminate much, does it? <laughs> but that's the quality of mind, that it's, it's clarity. That it's primarily clear, it's limpid, it's, it's you know, perspicuous. Whereas 
our ordinary, ordinary mind, so we've got mind as such, an ordinary mind, our ordinary mind is clouded, confused, and arises, if I'm combining two systems here, with lots and lots of unwholesome states of mind, with un- lots of unwholesome mental events. So it's getting back to its fundamental clarity is what Mahamudra and Dzogchen practice is aimed at. Getting back to that fundamental clarity of mind and identifying with that, not with the confusion, the what you're calling you know, the, the chitter events. So that's the movement that's taking place. So there is a fundamental quality. Again, bear in mind when I think there is a fundamental quality, it still doesn't make mind into a thing. Because even that clarity is an event itself. We talked about um, actions or reactions. I was wondering if you could talk about passive actions. Passive actions. Can you give me an example of what you think of? So it's the one is supposed to take passive until it's possible to act and react. Well, I can think of passive actions in terms of... Trying to think through. We can certainly think in terms of passivity and not doing, which is still an action, for example. Uh, that would be passive. Um, you know, for example, in a way, to not engage in an ethical action still has an ethical quality to it. So that would be an example of that. So yeah, there's these sort of things, passive so actions. No, there is no such thing as passivity. I mean, opting out is still opting in. <laughs> You're still doing something. That's the whole point about it. So there's no kind of get out clause in any of that. going on, just saying, just questioning, why am I making this mistake again? 
that's to recognize that you've got a problem. Um, sometimes, for example, and this is the most <coughs> classic one really, is, is um, big events, big traumas, sometimes create awareness um, and impel one into examination. Both in some ways spotlight that there, are pro- there is a problem. Now, without that, interestingly, of course, Buddhism says no change can occur without that awareness. This is why, you know, in the kind of cosmology of Buddhism, um, they did pick six realms. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, know this. Of which, actually, the human realm isn't the highest. The, the highest realm in the realm of Sangsara is the gods. Is the realm of the gods. And according to the sort of descriptions you get within the cosmology and mythologies around this, the gods have everything. They appear to have all things they want, they have all the food they want, they dress in beautiful clothes, all the kind of descriptions go on. What they lack, of course, is any impetus to change at all. Now, interestingly, they are placed in Sangsara. Yeah, this, is, this is a model of life, really, because once you get to the top, the only way is down. <laughs> and this is the top of the Sangsaric realm. Yeah, so they've reached the pinnacle, the only way is down after that. So they haven't the motivation, whilst they are God in God realm, in the God realm, to actually want to escape Sangsara. Now, I think it's a wonderful metaphor, whether one takes it literally or not. It's a wonderful metaphor. I mean, one of the descriptions, sticking up to that description, is wonderful. It's very humorous. It says that um, the beings in the godlike realm, of course, have a kind of big stash of good karma which keeps them in there. And, of course, like a sort of bank balance, it's sort of flowing away <laughs> in a steady stream. Um, and just about the time when they're likely to fall out of the Sangsaric, out of the godlike realm into a lower rebirth, it says, that um, they start to smell. And nobody wants to know them. <laughs> Just before they're likely to take rebirth in a lower realm. <laughs> and I thought, that's just wonderful as a metaphor for what often goes on with the kind of rich and famous and everything else. Um, but it's that idea that there is no impetus. If, if there is no awareness that there is such a thing as, as dukkha, then in other words, they have the most profound form of dukkha from the Buddhist perspective, which is the dukkha of ignorance. They don't even know they're suffering. They don't even know that they're in an unsatisfactory state, that they will go down. Now, the, the realm within this kind of cosmological description, which has the most um, charm is the human realm. That's very strongly emphasized in Tibetan tradition. In other words, it says, be aware of this. This is what's emphasized very strongly at the beginning, even in the Mahamudra practice, but I haven't gone into it with you, is awareness of the one thing which is absolutely certain and the one thing that's absolutely uncertain. The one thing that's absolutely certain is death. The one thing that's absolutely un- is uncertain is when. <laughs> so, if you know, and this is what the way they talk about it, if one knows 
and one really appreciates that you have this rather precious thing, which is a human birth, then one should utilise it. One should strive with as much awareness as you can to achieve the goal. Because, you know, today might be one's last. It's as simple as that. It might be a last day. And this is not meant to be sort of dwelt on pessimistically, kind of morbid brooding. Oh dear, there's death around, and you're going to die, all this sort of stuff. It's meant to bring you into the now. So that you practice now and do things now, don't you? I don't know how many of you do this, but you kind of put off to tomorrow what you can do today. <laughs> um, it's getting us out of that in terms of our practice and practice with intensity now because you don't know what tomorrow will bring so you have to have these kind of awarenesses to, to generate you generate that impetus to wish to practice now in the Mahayana traditions obviously which is Mahamudra is part of this should generate in one is this understanding that not only is my state extremely unsatisfactory, extremely painful, but yours is equally. And so therefore, I should strive to attain a position where I can genuinely help all others with their pain, with their suffering. And that is the Bodhisattva vow. I might just quickly correct a misunderstanding that often goes on about this, and it still gets repeated in the book from time to time, which is that Bodhisattvas put off enlightenment or awakening in order to help others. That's completely wrong. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. I might be correcting something which you might not have heard, but it's often still generated in books. What the genuine Bodhisattva vow is, is to direct oneself towards the goal of full and perfect Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. So it's not the goal, for example, of the non-Mahayana schools. The goal of non-Mahayana schools is the goal of the Arahat, attaining awakening for oneself. But this is to, if you like, go for the big one. <laughs> go for the big one, which is Buddhahood. Because only a Buddha can genuinely help. And that is, if you like, the change of vision between non-Mahayana schools and Mahayana schools in the Indian system. It was a change of the emphasis about what Buddhism was about. Less of an emphasis on one's own awakening, although that was still important, but much more of an awareness of others. A movement, in other words, of externalization in terms of your motivation. You're doing this for the benefit of others. Now, if one genuinely takes that path, which of course Mahamudra is steeped in, if one genuinely accepts that path, then Bodhisattvahood and the path to Buddhahood is a very long, arduous path. So it's the complete opposite of this idea that a, a Bodhisattva staves off um, awakening until the last being is liberated. And it's a very English conception. I have this vision of the last two Bodhisattvas you know, in the world, going one after you. No, after you! (laughs) 
because there's all the angers and irritations and all the other stuff going on as well. But it's there. And that's what I was saying last night. The Buddhism isn't trying to sort of import things from outside which aren't there. It's building on what's already there. So just, you know, we have calm states of mind from time to time. We have insightful states of mind from time to time. We act well and ethically from time to time. It just doesn't predominate. That's all. Now, this relaxation, letting go of these kind of willful, ingrained habits, which are part of you know, what we take to be a self. That's the other thing. It's part of what we take to be ourselves are these habits. We use them and we create identity out of them as well. If we can learn to let go of those, then the natural wholesome aspects of our nature will start to arise. Now I'm simplifying it a bit for the sake of time, but it's this allowance of these things to rise spontaneously. In other words, you can think about the difference between natural compassion and contrived compassion. Where I sit back and think, I'm going to be compassionate towards you. Or the just simple outflowing of something that arises naturally and it couldn't do but otherwise in seeing something which generates that response. One can arise, one is arising still linked to the notion of self, through the solid sense of self, and one arises through the emptying out of this me which one holds very strongly to. There's a lot of things involved in that, but you know, it's, it's allowing the space for these things to arise naturally. This is the thing that's used in Mahamudra, the spontaneous natural arising of phenomena by not identifying with <laughs> all those other things. But we'll talk about this more as we go through the week, because this is very, very important. This is the crux of really what Mahamudra is about. It's 20 to 9, so I think probably we should finish there and uh, have 20 minutes sitting just to finish the day. Quieten the mind down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.